ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. The Motley Fool LLC has been recommending individual stocks as part of their subscription newsletter service for over 30 years. Now Motley Fool Asset Management has taken the Motley Fool LLC's top 100 analyst-recommended companies and put them into a single passively managed ETF. It's an instantly diversified portfolio of 100 top-rated large-cap stocks with market-beating potential, all in one low-cost ETF. For more, visit fooletfs.com slash Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Ali Doyle, who heads up business development for exchange-traded product listings at NASDAQ. And as regular listeners know, I absolutely love visiting with individuals from exchanges because they truly have a front row seat to everything going on in the world of ETFs. They see and hear it all. Uh, they have so many behind-the-scenes conversations with uh, issuers, regulators, investors, really everyone. And so this should be fun. We're going to get into ETF flows, uh, new launches, ETF filings, uh, ETF trading. I'm really hoping to cover it all. And I can't wait to find out what's front of mind for Allie right now with everything going on in ETF. So uh, really looking forward to that conversation. Also joining me this week, will be Sal Esposito, head of ETF products at Zacks Investment Management, who I'm guessing many of you are probably familiar with Zacks Investment Research, who's one of the largest and I would say most prominent investment research shops out there. But they also have an investment management arm. And under that investment management arm, they did launch an ETF a couple of years ago. It's the Zacks Earnings Consistent Portfolio ETF, ticker symbol ZECP. Uh, this is an actively managed ETF. And the goal, I would say in a nutshell, is to invest in companies that are more resilient, companies that might better weather a recession. And they try to accomplish that by screening for companies with earnings stability over the past 15 years and then looking at earnings forecast over the next two years. There's also a uh, qualitative aspect to selecting companies as well. So uh, we'll get into that ETF. And then Zacks also offers ETF model portfolios, which I do want to spend a few minutes on uh, as well. Now to start this week, I have on the line with me, Tom Lydon, Vice Chairman of Vetify. And as he did last time he was on here, 
Tom provided me with a boatload of Vetify polling data on all sorts of topics, uh, from the current markets to the economy to ETFs. And I'll tell you, I had an absolute field day going through these yesterday and picking out what I thought were some of the most uh, interesting results. So we're going to go through those right now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, how have you been? Uh, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Nate. How are you doing? Looking forward to this today. This is going to be fun. And uh, I, I got to tell you, I bet there were more than, what, 30 survey questions that you sent me over. There were a ton of topics here. And uh, so what I did is I just try to select some that piqued my interest and, and I thought were most relevant with everything going on. And certainly there's no shortage of things happening in the uh, the, the markets right now. But I, I guess first, as usual, do you want to explain where these questions and this uh, data comes from? Yeah, Nate, you know, at Vetify, so we, we're the legacy ETF trends, ETF database, database, advisor perspectives. We've got hundreds of thousands of advisors over the course of the year coming to the site's but the great thing is, based on the ticker symbols they look up, the strategies, the channels that they go to, specific articles, we can actually see from advisor behavior what they're most interested in learning about today. So it's it's not just individual ETF strategies, it's themes, it's the markets, it's the economies. And all that drives more of the data that advisors are looking for. And all that drives the content in, in things not like written stories, but also webcasts. So when we're on webcasts and thousands of advisors are on webcasts every month, we have the ability real time to get their feedback on how they feel about markets, strategy, portfolio construction, economy. And that's really what I, I shared with you yesterday. And I can picture, you know, you being a little bit uh, in having a struggle between how much fun you're having with this and and watching the golf tournament. <laughs> no, you know what? I could uh I, I we could do a 3 hour long podcast on all the different survey questions. I think you know, I I've, I've mentioned this in the past. I just love data like this because I think it's sometimes hard to really get a window into how advisors are actually thinking. You know, we all read a lot of different uh, stories in the media and, you know, there's different research papers and this and that. But this is really you're, you're hearing from the horse's mouth as to how, uh, you know, how they're thinking. And so I, I just love this stuff. And so what I thought we would do like last time is I'll offer up the uh, the poll question and give the results. And then perhaps you can offer some color and we can just bat these around a little bit. Um, so, it, look, first up. A hot topic recently is the top heaviness of the market right now, right? Where a handful of uh, mega cap growth companies are providing all of the returns in the S&P 500. And I, I don't know if you saw this. I actually tweeted out a stat from the Wall Street Journal on Sunday. So the S&P 500 is up 12% this year, but it would be negative without the contribution of seven large tech companies. And so with that in mind, the first question that I flagged was this. The question was, what is your opinion of an equal weight investment approach? And over 52% of respondents said they would consider investing in a fund or portfolio that equally weights all positions. 
35% said they would prefer to weight positions based on other criteria, so market cap, sector exposure, et cetera. And then the remaining uh, 12 to 13% said they would not consider an equal weight approach when constructing an investment portfolio. But, Tom, the majority did say they would consider equal rate, uh, weighting right now. And I, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts here because – if you would have had an equal weighted approach coming into the year, let's just say uh, in the S&P 500, you would have underperformed. I, I, I look, the Invesco S&P 500 equal weight ETF, ticker RSP, that's only up a little over 2%, uh, again, compared to the S&P 500, which is up over 12%. But the question is, what do you think about equal weighting uh, moving forward? Well, so a great example is RSP, which is the Invesco equal weight 500 ETF, just had its 20-year anniversary. And historically, over time, equal weight outperforms the cap-weighted strategy. But as you know, coming out of the financial crisis, there was a handful of tech companies that garnered most of the gain. And those old FANG stocks that we call, now there are a few more that are added to that, the seven or eight that you, that you highlight now, they have been the majority of the gain. The big fear that most advisors have today is having so much concentration as their portfolios are highly correlated to the S&P 500. Yes, it's great to have that on the upside, but as we'll talk about in a little bit, market volatility is the biggest concern of most of the clients out there today. So spreading that, diversifying that over time, although it doesn't feel the greatest right now, will probably work well. And you know, what you want to do is make sure that if something's really hot, that you somewhat stay away from that so you can diversify. And uh, that's really key and critical. Yeah, my take on this, I think it really just depends on how you view the world, because I think you can make the argument that what we've seen this year with a handful of companies carrying returns, well, that's exactly why you should take a market cap weighted approach, right? You, you, you get that benefit. And we, we've seen it in the past. On the other hand, I do think it's hard not to think about risk management right now, right? When you see a stock like uh, NVIDIA doing what it's doing. And so maybe that sounds like I'm deflecting a little bit, but I always come back to, as an investor, what can you stick with? And if you look at RSP, you know, the risk return profile that in my mind is much more like mid-cap stock exposure, um, I'm not saying that's good or bad. You just have to be prepared for periods of under, underperformance like we've seen this year. But again, moving forward, maybe that's a, a better way to manage risk in a portfolio. So I, I go back and forth on this. I, I come back with, again, what can you stick with as an investor? And I, I guess related, Tom, you know, the next question that I uh, I flagged was, I, I thought, right along with what we're talking about here, because the question was, what are you most concerned about for the next 12 months? And obviously, based on whatever you're concerned about, it's going to help drive what's in your portfolio and then whether you can stick with it. So let me give the results here. 40% said they were most concerned about a recession. Um, about 24% said market valuations. 16% uh, inflation, 13% uh, geopolitical um, tensions, and then there were a couple of other answers as well. But if you look at the S&P 500 right now, uh, the forward price-to-earnings ratio is about 
which is above the 25-year average of 16.8. I, I pulled that from J.P. Morgan. Now, of course, those earnings depend on what happens over the next year, right? And so if we do get a recession, certainly that could negatively impact earnings, and, and maybe these valuations look even worse. But, but my, my question for you here is, any thoughts on where stocks are valued right now? Because, again, I think that plays into the type of approach you might take in a portfolio on the equity side. Yeah. So, Nate, one thing you touched on uh, earlier is advisors are with it. They're into it and they're real time making decisions. You know, six or eight months ago, their biggest concern was inflation. Today, they think that the Fed's done a good job and they have it under control. So they are concerned about valuations. They're concerned about market volatility for sure. But back to those eight stocks with them setting the the P-E ratio of the S&P 500 almost twice what the Russell 2000 is. They just haven't seen that in a long period of time. So they're going to be attracted more towards diversification, not just in large cap, but mid and small. And then you look at valuations overseas, we're seeing money flowing into international markets like we haven't seen in a long period of time. Um, They're smart. Advisors are smart and they're not getting caught up in the hype. That hype in those eight stocks is something that we see on CNBC every day, all day long. But they can come and, and, and bite you really quickly as well. And they know that. So the conversations that they're having with clients is continue to diversify, continue to not pay too much for stocks. And yes, we may see a recession, but as you know, there are a lot of periods of time when recessions actually weren't that bad for the market because valuations were right because you could buy, actually buy stocks for cheaper prices and the recessions weren't deep enough to cut earnings that much. It was actually... Uh, some of these slight recessions that we've seen are actually been okay for the market. I, I don't want to get off topic here, but when you look at valuations, I'm seeing a lot of chatter right now. I'm seeing charts out on Twitter regarding the spread between large cap, primarily large cap growth, and then small caps, and maybe small cap value in particular. Any thoughts on small cap stocks? Because Again, I just, I just see a lot more chat around there uh, around this. But again, if we get into a recession, you know, are small caps where you want to be? Maybe that's why they're valued where they're at. But uh, I, again, I just see a lot of chatter around small caps right now. Yeah, I, I did a, uh, a webcast last week with a couple of the portfolio managers from Dimensional. We specifically talked about small caps U.S., small cap international. And, and these guys have been around for a while. They said they just don't remember seeing the disparity in valuations that they've seen recently, which says, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden things are going to catch up, but the odds are so much in your favor. And again, back to diversification, you don't want to find that a year from now when small caps catch up that you say shoulda, coulda, woulda. You know, that's, I think, when you see most of these advisors that are really smart these days and taking advantage of these valuations and diversification are doing the right thing for their clients. Yeah, no question it comes back to diversification. I think what scares some advisors away from small caps right now is just the number of companies with uh, little or no earnings. And again, these concerns that if we do get a recession, maybe those companies would feel it the worst. But again, certainly small cap value, that looks much more attractive than large cap growth from a valuation 
perspective. So I, I think that's going to be interesting to watch here over the next uh, year or so. And I, I guess speaking of uh, the, the next year or so, the next polling question sort of sticks with that, that theme. And again, Tom, I just love getting data like this because it's such a window into how advisors are thinking right now. And the question was, do you plan to make adjustments to client portfolios for the second half of 2023? Now, 44% said no, they don't plan to make any changes. But 24% said yes, they plan to take money out of equities and allocate to fixed income. And then 16% had the inverse of that, that they plan to take money out of fixed income and allocate to uh, to equities. And then the remainder uh, was a mix of taking positions in commodities, alternatives, or, or other asset classes, or just moving to cash um, altogether. But the largest portion of respondents, while, while they aren't doing anything, the second largest contingent is moving money out of stocks and into fixed income, which probably gets back into these concerns around a recession. Did that stand out to you at all? I'm curious what you thought of that one. Well, it did, Nate. And and just yesterday, Tom Hendrickson and I were looking at uh, recent interest among advisors, specifically to tickers. And the ticker symbol lookup on uh, fixed income U.S. to corporates more than double just in the last 30 days. So what does that tell you? There's more interest there and these polling questions support that. In addition, which is unbelievable, we're seeing a huge increase in uh, interest and you're starting to see flows that support this as well towards uh, global fixed income, international fixed income. With the idea, if if you focus in on why, now, a lot of advisors are feeling like they may, the Fed may have one more rate hike in them, but a year from now, we're going to have lower rates. If we have lower rates a year from now, they're comfortable going a little bit longer duration and a little bit less credit quality coming outside of short-term treasuries, even though they're paying 5%. That 5% is not going to be available a year from now. And if you go treasuries to corporates or even in high yields in some situations, not only can you support those higher yields, but actually have some appreciation if rates start to come down a bit. Real good strategy decisions, especially as a lot of folks took money off the table in the fixed income area, their allocation for clients, and really getting back to the traditional 60-40. I'm really glad you flagged this topic of uh, duration in bonds, because out of the you know 30 plus questions you sent me, I, I flagged. A, a polling question. Yeah, let me read this. So the question was, what are your views on duration for fixed income? And 37% said they have begun to reduce their underweight. In other words, take on duration. Um, 33% said still too early. But then 31% said rates have peaked, so I'd go long duration. So you, you add that all together. I mean, you're talking, what, 37 38%. I'm sorry, uh, 67, 68% uh, are saying that they're either, you know, reducing that underweight, so taking on duration risk, or just like going all in, going long duration. And, you you know, if you do think rates have peaked, obviously you want to take on that duration. And we're seeing that in flows. Like literally the top ETF in inflows this year is the iShares 20-plus year treasury bond ETF, ticker TLT. Tom, that thing has over $10 billion dollars in inflows. And obviously that's taking on duration risk. I mean, the effective duration there is what over 17. 
So uh, that's another one. You know, I've talked a lot about uh, over the past couple of months, this barbell approach where we know we can look at the flows again. We know a lot of advisors are parking on the front end of the curve because, look, if you can scoop up five, you know, five and a half percent, uh, you know, pretty much risk free with everything else going on, that's not a bad proposition. But if you do think we're going to get into a recession and you want to have a little bit of a hedge in a portfolio, maybe you take on. Uh, that duration risk and look to an, an ETF like TLT. I don't know if, if you have any additional thoughts on that. Yeah, I think a lot of advisors, e- even though they say they're mo- not market timers, <laughs> raised cash, especially in the fixed income portion of their portfolio in the last couple of years. So they're sitting on the sidelines, powder drying. And you know, Nate, you're getting paid for it now, which is great. Money market funds are are actually paying something and it's worthwhile. However, they know that this is probably short-lived. So they're smart. And when you see the flows that are coming into longer duration, it's because all this money has been on the sidelines and they're starting to push it back in. And I I think this trend's going to continue because once there's evidence that the Fed is in fact done, the question still, they're not sure. Uh, Half advisors feel they're done. The other half of advisors in general feel there's one more rate hike. But when, when that final rate hike's in, you're going to start to see more money going into longer duration. And if we start to see uh, inflation more under control, rates start pulling back, this may be a run that we have for a period of time, which would be really healthy for portfolios and also make advisors look really good as they've gone through a tough period of time in the markets, both in equities and fixed income in the last couple of years. Which with you saying that, I have to go back to the question regarding uh, whether advisors plan to make any adjustments to client portfolios for the second half of 2023. One of the responses, which I I alluded to, was that uh, there's some advisors that plan to move to all cash. So 4% said they plan to move to all cash. I I would just say good luck with that. (laughs) Because, (laughs) hey, if you're right, you're going to look like an absolute hero. But if you're wrong, uh, I don't know that I'd want to be in in your shoes. Uh, But, Tom, if we pull this all together on the portfolio time, and and you noted this earlier that, you know, probably the biggest goal of advisors right now is to manage volatility in a portfolio. And so you had a poll question which asked, my biggest goal for clients over the next six months is two. And, And the responses were, uh, 60% said mitigate their exposure to market volatility and downside risk. 26% said bolster their portfolios against recession. 9% said uh, protect them against rising rates. And then 5% said tax loss harvest for their benefit. But again, that 60% plus mitigate exposure to market volatility and downside risk. And by the way, when I saw that response, you know, the first thing that popped in my head was uh, defined outcome ETFs. Like, it makes perfect sense why defined outcome ETFs are doing so well and why we're seeing so many of those come to market from different issuers. But um, any, any other other comments you would add to that? Again, you mentioned that earlier, but maybe talk about the, this goal of advisors to manage volatility in a portfolio right now. Well, we know we can do that by diversifying more. Uh, going up until two years ago, the average advisor wasn't as diversified. They didn't have as much outside the U.S. and had a super high weighting in in large cap stocks. Uh, I think they also are pretty flexible. Although most advisors say they're not market timers, we've had polls that say between 60 and 65% use some type of timing strategy in their portfolio allocation. And you could just see with the flows that that, in fact, was the case. Okay. So here we are, fast forward to today. 
They feel like rates are, are going to be stabilized. They feel like there's going to be a recession. However, the recession isn't going to be as harsh. So if there is a soft landing and there's valuation out there outside a large cap, especially those eight big uh, mega cap companies, it just begs for diversification. And if, in fact, we get that, and you know, Nate, you and I have talked about this before, that period of time historically between the last rate hike and the first rate cut usually is really, really good for the market. And advisors know that. They just don't want to be flat-footed there. They want to make sure that they are putting uh, money to work. And although they don't want that volatility, they feel like if they're staying outside of those volatile tech stocks, that it's not going to be as volatile for them and their clients will be better. But look, you know, as an advisor, it's not easy these days. These past couple of years, if, if you've been a financial advisor, you've been challenged and, uh, you know, Nate, you've earned your stripes. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm catching a theme from you this morning. Diversification. So, so you're telling me the time-tested practice of diversifying a portfolio still works? Well, more, more than ever, um, and you haven't been paid for it, you know, in the last five or 10 years. But I think eventually the pendulum swings. Just so, like, uh, you know, when we look at passive, passive and ETFs was the way to be. Active has just gone through the roof and advisors are putting more and more money into smart portfolios uh, managers' hands. So it's it's great. This ETF business continues to evolve. Markets continue to evolve. Nate, there's always something for you and I to talk about, right? All right. So on that note, um, I want to ask you about two more questions here. And these aren't uh, related to the markets and some of the stuff we're talking about. Not as much, but don't laugh. I uh, I did flag one involving... ESG. So not crypto, but but ESG. Uh, I'm sure that'll be a huge surprise to you. But the question was this, the strategies I'm most interested in for my clients over the next six months include, and uh, you know, there was a list, people could select more than one. So these percentages aren't going to add up to 100. But 71%, 71% said dividend strategies, 42% low vol, low volatility strategies, 22% hedge fund like strategies, 10% ESG, and then 5% leverage. Now, I, I want to ask you about dividend strategies in a minute. Low vol and the hedge fund-like strategies make perfect sense to me, you know, why advisors are looking at those in this environment. But ESG, ESG strategies aren't looking so popular right now. And this caught my attention, Tom, because I feel like every poll I ever see on ESG shows all sorts of interest and demand, but then we never really see that reflected in, in actual flows and actual money being put to work. But your poll actually comports with the flows. Money is not pouring in to ESG ETF. So uh, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but any comments you would offer on uh, ESG in particular? I think advisors are sincerely interested. However, when uh, push comes to shove and they're making allocations, it's not a top priority right now. I, and I know, you know, as, as advisors here in the U.S., we're fair weather fans of ESG uh, overseas, especially in Europe, it's ingrained in what you do. It's not that way here. But as you know, as always, when markets come back and people are feeling good about their portfolios again, ESG, I think will start, you know, seeing flows. But uh, right now, as you point out, Nate, the, the flows support that it's not a big interest to advisors today. Were you surprised? I, I noted the dividend strategy, 71%. That jumped out at me. I was surprised that 
dividend strategies were still so popular. Only because, you know, look, you look last year with rising rates, people didn't want to stand in front of that rising rate freight train on the fixed income side. So they looked to dividend strategies for income. And I know depending upon the type of dividend strategy you're looking at, maybe that's a more of a quality or value tilt, which hasn't performed well this year. But if you think the environment may change, maybe we do get a recession, perhaps that's a good place to be. But I was surprised by the level of interest there. Did, did, did that surprise you at all? Yeah, well, if we happen to see rates come down a year from now, that means those uh, the dividend yields are going to be more competitive with current rates. And at the same time, if you've got that equity kicker because you feel like uh, all the inflationary headwind has been taken off the table and we actually are seeing valuations that are more in line and and you know better for clients these days it makes sense and then back to the diversi- diversification play that's really important too so look you're now can buy dividend oriented stocks for a lot cheaper than you could a couple years ago and advisors are taking advantage of it as they're trying to spread out where they get their yield yeah, and the other thing here, too, is I guess if you look at flows, we are still seeing ETFs like SEHD taking money, and an ETF like COWS comes to mind, or even JEPI, which isn't necessarily a dividend strategy, but it's an income strategy. So, you know, JEPI continues to just vacuum up cash. So, hey, clearly there's still uh, interest there. Those options overlay strategies uh, are booming, and w- we may be just getting started. This is It's almost an asset class into themselves, Nate. I know we could spend a, a, a whole show on that, but uh, boy, they're really seeing a lot of flows, and the folks are doing a good job instituting those strategies. It's a nice option to consider, too. Yeah, I believe I just saw Goldman Sachs filed for some products there as well. So I think you're right. We're going to continue to see a boom in those you know, income uh, option-oriented strategies. Um, all right, Tom, just a, a couple of minutes left. The last polling question I selected here covered what I thought was an interesting topic and one that I really haven't discussed much on this podcast. So let me read the question here. Uh, the, the, the question was, have you ever used an ETF strategy firm to assist in reaching your client's investment needs. Uh, 23% said yes, 59% said no, and then 18% said I'm still evaluating uh, my options. And you can talk about those results if you want, but I thought it might be interesting. You know, who are some ETF strategy firms that come to mind for for you? And, And maybe, you know, how do you see advisors working with those firms? Again, this just isn't a topic I've covered much. Yeah, well, there there are a lot, uh, and you, and again, very quickly, ETF strategists are financial advisors who now just don't serve individual investors, but they also serve other financial advisors. We actually have an ETF strategist channel on ETF Trends and ETF Database, where some of the top ETF strategists in the country actually make their portfolios available for financial advisors or individual investors as well. With the idea, kind of back to the active versus passive, Nate, a lot of them have portfolios, but they're not just dyed-in-the-wool asset allocation strategies. They're actually active strategies that take advantage of opportunities in the market or avoid areas that uh, may be underperforming or challenged based on what's going on in the markets and economies. So this is another option that's gotten, gotten more popular as People have moved away from passive based on what's going on in the marketplace and and going on in the economy. So there's a whole slew. If you're interested, go to the ETF Strategist channel at Vetify, and you can find out 
not only about the profile of these strategists, but also they can talk about their individual strategies and, and there's information there. So I'm glad you brought that up because it really is a great option. Yeah, and I think the high level um, you know pitch or, or value add here is that if you're an advisor, I think you know most advisors have some level of investment expertise, but maybe constructing portfolios isn't your core expertise, and you want to spend your time on you know adding value to your clients outside of just the portfolio management piece. This is an easy way, right? You find the right ETF strategist to partner with and leverage their expertise, leverage their models, and focus on the client relationship. I mean, I think in a nutshell, that's what uh, this comes back to. But maybe we should do a uh, a segment on that in the future, Tom. We're going to have to leave it there. You know I always love going through this polling data. Excellent stuff this week. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nate. Take care. That was Tom Leiden, Vice Chairman of Vetify. Growth and Innovation. Two words that best describe the ETF industry. However, rapid growth and innovation creates a critical need for financial advisors and industry practitioners, education. Enter the ETF Institute, the first and only independent organization providing industry professionals and financial advisors with certification, education, and training on ETFs. Learn more about the certified ETF advisor designation by visiting CETF.org. My next guest is Allie Doyle. She heads up business development for exchange-traded product listings at NASDAQ, who currently lists about 550 exchange-traded products with over $1 trillion in assets from over 50 ETF issuers. And Allie is primarily responsible for developing and managing those ETF issuer relationships. And she's now on the line with me from New York. Allie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nate. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So I mentioned at the top, I always love visiting with individuals such as yourself who are with major exchanges because I feel like you have a front row seat to everything going on in the world of ETFs. Yeah. I feel like you truly see and hear it all, right, from new filings uh, to being involved with new launches and tracking their success to, to really just gauging uh, the overall health of the industry. And so I thought we could discuss what you've seen so far this year and then certainly look ahead in terms of what might be coming down the pike. But um, I, I guess to start just high level, what have you seen activity-wise this year in terms of whether it be new filings, launches, flows, any key metrics that you're tracking? And we can get into some detail in a moment, but just high level, what's jumped out at you? Yeah, uh, yeah, and thanks. Uh, we, we like to think that we're, we're on the pulse of it here, so uh, excited to share a couple points with you. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting year so far. I'll start with a little bit about flows, can, can share a couple of numbers with you. Um, you know, it's so a year-to-date U.S. ETFs have brought in about $257 billion, um, you know, which is substantial. But, you know, last year at this time, inflows were at roughly almost $400 billion. Uh, May brought in $64.5 billion, which is definitely a nice comeback following the about $6 billion loss we saw in April. 
So, you know, I think people are still, you know, starting to become active again. A um, couple, you know, key trends and winners, uh, you know, that we've noticed on the flows front, uh, you know, won't be a surprise to you, definitely fixed income and active ETFs. There was there was some data I saw recently from Logically that showed about $28 billion have gone into active ETFs. Um, that was through the end of April. Jeff Q, you know, which is the Jake Morgan NASDAQ equity premium income ETF, um, definitely a clear winner there. They've taken in over $2 billion in AUM year to date. And then, like you said, I can get into some more details later on on the launches and the filings. But, you know, overall, very busy year. We're essentially tied with where we were this time last year. I'm curious if you look at the flows into uh, equity ETFs, and again, we can just talk high level, but if you look at, say, the Qs, the NASDAQ 100, mm-hmm. that's up nearly 34% year to date. The S&P 500 is up what 12%, but equity ETF flows, particularly uh, US equity ETF flows have been muted overall. Do you do you make anything of that? Yeah, honestly, I I I think it's hard to say. I mean, like you said, it's been relatively flat, but you know, there have been a couple pockets that have stood out. Um, I will say the biggest equity gainers in May, so this past month, you know, were those three largest S&P 500 ETFs you know, SPY, IVV, VOO. So, I mean, uh, hard, hard to say kind of what's happened so far. I mean, I think the rest of the year will will play out. And, and honestly, the, the Qs and those S&P 500 ETFs could kind of continue to make a comeback as, you know, hopefully they continue to outperform. Yeah, I've seen that. There certainly has been a recent uptick into those U.S. equity ETFs. So we'll see if there's a carry through there. Um, Allie, given NASDAQ is one of the largest exchanges, I'm curious if there's anything noteworthy regarding um, ETF trading activity. And I'm not sure if you saw this, but ICI recently put out some new data that showed ETFs accounted for over 30% of U.S. stock market trading in 2022. That was the highest level over the past uh, 10 years. Anything at all you would note on the ETF trading side? Yeah, I I did see that report, actually. Uh, It was as high as I think it said 39% some days, which looking back maybe pre-pandemic 2019 period, I think was some of the lowest days were like 14 or 15%. So, I mean, I think it's a great story, you know, continues to be a great story for ETFs. I think the growth is, it continues to partially be due to that uptick in retail trading we've seen, but, you know, definitely can't discount, you know, the overall continued adoption of ETFs by financial advisors and institutions, you know, as they continue to look to ETFs as both an investment tool, but but really just an overall, you know, trading tool and financial instrument. You know, it's 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 pretty evident that during times of, you know, volatility, ETFs can be used for price, price transparency, especially in the fixed income market and, you know, uh, uh, an ability to hedge risk. Um, I think it's also been interesting the options market on ETFs has continued to grow over time. I do think that's also contributed to, to growth in ETF trading. So, again, you know, from our seat at the, at the exchange, we really value investor education and, you know, working with our, you know, issuer partners on that. And so, you know, it's really important for us to explain to investors the importance of both this increase in the secondary market liquidity available in ETFs along with that underlying liquidity and ability to create additional shares when needed. Yeah, and I like your point on options. I mean, the entire ETF ecosystem, it just continues to flourish, everything around ETFs. And as you know better than most, liquidity begets liquidity. Yeah. And, you know, anytime we have seen these these major market uh, issues or you know, r- r- tough, rough turbulence pop up, we, we keep seeing ETFs equip themselves very well. So Exactly. Uh, um, okay, so let's get into uh, a little bit of detail here. I thought this would be fun. I'm very curious, as you look at new ETF launches on NASDAQ this year, 
Are there any in particular that uh, stand out to you, ones that have caught your attention for one reason or another? Yeah, definitely. No, excited to, to talk about a few of these. Um, just looking high level for a second, so we've had, um, and this is, you know, U.S. ETFs on, on all three exchanges. There have been 156 launches so far this year, which is double the number that we saw in 2020. Um, like I said earlier, basically right on par with the number um, last year. So, again, it's been a strong first half of the year, despite some of these economic uncertainties that we're seeing Active ETFs continue to make up a large percentage of launches, along with, um, you know, structured product ETFs that are, you know, embedding option strategies, as well as, you know, thematic ETFs. So, um, yeah, definitely want to highlight a few interesting launches we've had on NASDAQ so far. So BNY Mellon ETFs, they launched their first two ETFs on NASDAQ a few weeks ago. So we're very excited about that. One of those ETFs was a women's opportunities ETF. And they are partnering with charity Girls, Inc. on this fund. So, you know, that's a great opportunity. Summit Global Investors is a new issuer that we are working with. They entered the ETF space this past April with an active, non-transparent ETF. Roundhill Investments, um, they launched to what they are calling big ETFs. Um, and these are providing, these are each providing concentrated exposure to the largest and most liquid names in the banking and tech sectors. And then lastly, I'll mention FM Investments. They launched six additional single treasury ETFs this past spring, rounding out their suite of 10 ETFs, providing exposure to the treasury curve. So, you know, overall, again, you know, it's been a really exciting, you know, great year so far on NASDAQ. Our pipeline indicates it'll continue to be a strong second half of the year as we continue to work with, you know, both the established ETF issuers that you've come to know, as well as, you know, plenty of newcomers to the industry. It's interesting. Two of the uh, ETFs or ETF suites you highlighted are ones that I've talked quite a bit about on the podcast this year. So those Roundhill Concentrated uh, Basket mm-hmm. ETFs, I think those are very interesting. I've kind of described these very crudely as like, uh, more diversified single stock ETFs, yeah. if I can put that together. Yeah. But uh, I, I have to ask you about FM Investments. Um, I, I, I talked a little bit about this last week. I show they're already at $1.6 billion in assets in less than a year. And I, I'm curious why you think those are resonating so much. Did, is it yeah. just the perfect timing with the, the yield environment now, or do you think there, there's more to it than that? I think so, partially that, you know, these are the first of their kind which is, you know, obviously being first to market is always really important with ETFs. So I think that in itself really boosted their coverage in the market. Um, and, you know, they really are just applicable to all investors. So, I mean, it's the ease of access of the treasury market, again, in this, you know, the, the equity wrapper of, of the single treasury, you know, their tax efficiency. Also, you know, we brought up options already, the impending derivative market on these ETFs. I think those are just, you know, some of the reasons why these funds have already been so successful and well-received by investors. Like you said, they're already at $1.6 billion. I know they're the, the T-Bill ETF, TBIL, um, has, has growth. I think it's already over a billion, which is amazing. Um, and FM was actually, they were recently acquired by Diffractive Managers Group. So this is just going to give them, you know, additional access to Diffractive's centralized operational and distribution capabilities, 
So um, just a really great runway for them to get in front of, you know, new, you know, whether it's advisors or institutional clients. So really excited to see this uh, sweep continue to grow. Yeah, it's just an amazing uh, ETF success story, and I don't Mm -hmm. expect them to slow down at all. Um, Okay, Ali, let's move over to the ETF filing side. I always like to look at what's coming down the uh, hopper. And again, I, I mean, look, you do have a front row seat here. And so I have to ask you, Anything in particular standing out in terms of what might be coming to market? Uh, yeah, Nate, I am right there with you. The ETF filings is the first thing I look at every morning. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so year-to-date, there have been 305 ETFs that wow. have been filed, so quite a bit. Um, we've seen some firms file for, you know, very large suites at once. So, you know, I think that that number is is partially driven by that. You know, you have firms like Granite Shares. They filed for 32 new single-stock ETFs. Themes, they're a new ETF issuer. They filed for 22, um, you know, thematic beta products. And then, you know, along with single-stocks, we've also seen a few filings for Ether Futures ETFs, as well as a a variety of types of AI-focused ETFs. Um, And lastly, you know, I know you mentioned, you know, several issuers are, are filing for defined outcome ETFs. So I think those are a couple of the key categories and trends that we're seeing so far. All right. So you're giving me an opening here. I have to ask you yeah. about a, a few of those. Look, on the single stock ETFs, I'm not sure if you saw this, but um, Axis is already closing five of these products. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just curious how much upside you see in this category longer term and, and maybe what the path to success will look like. Like, does it come down to timing and uh, hoping the underlying company is in the news for good or bad reasons, and that'll lead to flows in a certain products, or just high level, how do you view that single stock ETF category? Yeah, I mean the delist- the delisting piece. Look, I mean it's 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 a healthy kind of um, inevitable and, and important part of of the overall ETF industry, right? Like you know, kind of these different issuers evaluating their lineups and seeing which ones, you know, are going to, you know, not just survive, but, you know, obviously also thrive long-term. So I, I think it's inevitable for, you know, all, all types of ETF issuers to, to potentially delist some of their ETFs. Um, I, I do think, though, there will be continued opportunity for these types of products for, for some of those reasons that you mentioned. I, I think timing is part of it, but, you know, the, the category overall, you know, there was so much talk about it in 2022 um, and they've been proven, you know, that they're viable trading vehicles and really just another tool for sophisticated investors to look to, you know, when they're looking to express a high conviction idea, like you said, potentially during, you know, earnings season. Granite Shares has a product that's a good example. They have a one and a half times long NVIDIA ETF that traded significantly higher than its average daily volume two weeks ago around the company's Q1 earnings. Access, you know, also has an ETF providing one and a quarter inverse exposure to NVIDIA. So, you know, I do think there is just, you know, considerable overall opportunity, whether it's, you know, with levered inverse, you know, strictly single stock ETFs or also kind of different sorts of flavors. We're also seeing different types of single stock ETFs being filed now with income components. You know, Curve is a new ETF issuer that filed for a suite of single stock yield premium ETFs. Rec Shares is another one. They filed for a suite of income-focused single-stock ETFs. So I do think they single-stock ETFs will continue in some capacity to be a part of the ETF pipeline. It's a fascinating uh, space to watch. And I'll, I'll just note on those NVIDIA single-stock ETFs that you mentioned, there's a, a couple of them out there. As mm-hmm. you would expect, they have taken in you know fairly sizable flows here 
recently, uh, which, again, I, I think it's back to maybe the best path to success. You know, ultimately, that underlying company needs to be in the news for good or bad reasons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that can help uh, get traction. But to your point, there's other strategies out there, too, if you're looking for you know income on single uh, stocks or, or whatever. Um, yeah. Allie, you mentioned uh, Ethereum. ETF filings, and I'm only laughing just because. I, look, I, I I don't know what you can talk about here, but I have to ask you what you made of that recent wave of filings. Because I'll tell you from my perspective, the entire uh, situation struck me is a bit odd because issuers have tried filing for these in the past, and then they were quickly withdrawn. Right? The SEC mm-hmm. clearly wasn't having it, and at least best I can tell, nothing changed since then. I would say, if anything, the SEC has become way more aggressive with uh, crypto enforcement and, and those sorts of things. And I won't give you my tinfoil hat uh, conspiracy mm-hmm. theory here. I'm, I'm just curious why you think issuers thought anything would be different here recently in, in filing. Yeah, um, I mean, not not too much secret sauce to add. I mean, I think it's like I said with the FM Treasury ETF, being first to market with a new type of ETF is so important. Um, I think that is, again, what partially drove multiple of these filings to come at once. Um, like you said, they were also withdrawn relatively quickly because there are still, you know, multiple lingering questions on uh, not just, you know, when, but even if these products will be allowed to come to market by the SEC. Um, so I, I, I think it might be a little while longer before one of these products, you know, comes to market. But again, I just think it's a great example uh, of these, you know, different sorts of issuers, you know, continuing and wanting to innovate and bring new types of products to market that they feel are meeting, you know, the needs of, of their investors. No, I think, I mean, look, first to market is clearly so important. We know that in any ETF category. Um, and I, I, I guess I'll, I'll dovetail that into a question. You mentioned uh, artificial intelligence ETFs, which Look, that's clearly a hot topic right now. I would say both ETFs using uh, AI as part of the investment process, but also ETFs investing in mm-hmm. AI-related companies. And, uh, you know, I think because of all the interest in this category, we're seeing issuers trying to get out there, be first to market. My, my question for you is what kind of legs do you think this space has longer term? Again, it's obviously hot at the moment, but do, do you think this is uh, sustainable? I, I do think it is sustainable. Like you said, it, 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 these products can go in a couple different directions, whether you're focused on incorporating it into the um, investment process or, you know, investing in those AI-focused companies. Um, it, it's almost a little bit like ESG, right? Are you incorporating incorporating it into your investment strategy or, you know, focus on the companies that are doing so? Um, I, I don't think you can probably go to either an ETF conference or just overall finance conference anymore where AI is not brought up in some capacity. So I think issuers both large and small are are going to need to consider how AI can be incorporated into their, you know, product lineup in some way. So, you know, like you said, it's a part of the future, no question. I think it remains to be seen what percentage of a portfolio, you know, would be allocated to these sorts of ETFs. Um, But, you know, like I said, I think from the smaller, you know, boutique issuers up to some of the larger ones, I think AI is is certainly not going anywhere and it's going to become much more prevalent. Allie, just a couple of minutes left here before I let you go. You know, anytime I visit with individuals who are with exchanges, I'd like to have them explain their overall role in the uh, ETF ecosystem because my, my sense is some people think it's just uh, just a trading part, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, you know, you're with NASDAQ, it's all about the ETF trading, but there's much more to it 
than that. And we do have a lot of ETF issuers uh, or prospective issuers who listen to this podcast. Do you, do you want to just spend a minute or two on how NASDAQ actually works with issuers on the back end? Yeah, absolutely. And and I love this question, too, because you're right. For, for those who don't live and breathe ETFs, and, and even even those of us who do, they, they really may not know all the support an issuer can receive from their exchange partner, which is why, you know, we feel it is so important to, to select the right one. So there's a lot I can say here. I'll touch on a couple highlights. You know, our team at NASDAQ really looks to be a full extension of an issuer's team when they are looking to launch an ETF. This can really start as early as product development, you know, as an issuer is exploring different opportunities in ETFs and really determining, you know, the right structure of the product. As a product launch gets closer, you know, we support on the legal and regulatory side ensuring, you know, the application is complete and, you know, we have a team of listing qualifications analysts who looks after that process. You know, moving forward from a capital markets and liquidity perspective, you know, like you said, the trading piece is, is so vital and so important. We have put a lot of time and investment building out our designated liquidity provider program. So this program, which is synonymous with a lead market maker program on other exchanges, you know, really works to incentivize market makers to meet a variety of market quality requirements, um, such as tight spreads, notional depth, and time at the inside of the NBDO. Um, we can also help make introductions to some of these market-making firms for new issuers who may not have those relationships. So our liquidity program and, you know, these market-maker relationships being the largest, you know, U.S. equity venue is a real key pillar of our ETF business. And finally, I'll mention, you know, we work with an issuer's marketing team on how we can both support their current marketing strategy and ways that they can also leverage the NASDAQ brand and our marketing partnerships, really to work to grow awareness of their ETFs and, you know, ultimately what do they want, driving trading volume and assets into the product. So, you know, like we said at the top, um, you know, we really have our hands in all aspects of the life cycle of an ETF, and we love building relationships with all different types of issuers. Yeah, that's a fan. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the last thing, you know, I'll just touch on a little bit is just, you know, the thought leadership that we've really worked to develop here at NASDAQ, you know, through, you know, a variety of different formats, whether that's in-person events, written content, or webinars. So, you know, a couple things that we've worked on recently, we published our second iteration of our retail investor survey. Um, so we surveyed about 2,000 retail investors, asking them a variety of questions. Um, so we have some, you know, data that we've put out on that. We held a webinar last month um, alongside the Mutual Fund Administration Corporation, and they touched on some of the nuances around mutual fund to ETF conversions. Certainly a hot topic. That Actually, I'm surprised we didn't touch on more on this call. And then lastly, we held an event on the future of options, um, and that was at our Philadelphia office in partnership with the CFA Society of Philly um, and our NASDAQ Index Options team and had the chance to feature a couple of our listings partners, namely GlobalX and Simplify on one of those panels. So definitely lots going on over here. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, that is a fantastic interview. I should have known that would be the, uh, the the perfect question for you because, again, I think people look at uh, somebody like NASDAQ and they think it's all about trading. And certainly trading and, and you know having the t- those tight spreads is clearly very important, but there's so much else that goes on behind the scenes from – you know, product development. I know, you know, helping on the regulatory side. You mentioned supporting marketing and, and distribution. There's so much there. So I, I just, I always like to, to, to have exchanges highlight that. But Allie, we're going to have to leave it there. Great having you on the uh, podcast this week. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. That was Allie Doyle with business development for ETP listings at NASDAQ. 
Is it time to amplify your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. joined by Sal Esposito, head of ETF products at Zach's Investment Management, who currently offers one ETF, but it's an interesting one, the Zach's Earnings Consistent Portfolio ETF, ticker symbol ZECP. This has seen about $20 million in new money this year. It's up to nearly $40 million altogether. And of course, Zach's will be a familiar name to many investors, given their prominence in the investment research space. Uh, Sal is now on the line with me from New Jersey. Sal, welcome to the podcast. Nate, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. All right. So let's actually start with uh, what I was just mentioning there regarding the investment research business, because I do think many investors are at least uh, somewhat familiar with the Zach's brand in that regard. So how is that business uh, tied to the investment management business, if at all? Yeah, great question. I obviously get this question a lot. Uh, obviously, Zach, from a research perspective, is a household name. We've been around since 1978. Um, believe it or not, many people don't know we have an investment management arm. It's wholly, a wholly owned subsidiary of the research company that was started in 1992. So primarily what we do is actually we take those army of research analysts that we have and we take that data every day. And that's, that's the first, first and foremost, the, the top, the top of the portfolio construction process, right? Every portfolio we offer at that whether it be in SMAs, mutual funds, or the ETF like ZECP, starts and finishes with that ranking and re-ranking of data that we have on the research side. Okay, and just to be clear, within that investment management business, so uh, obviously you offer an ETF, which we'll discuss here in a moment. I know you also offer model portfolios, which I do want to ask you about those as well, but you mentioned uh, mentioned SMAs and, and mutual funds. Any other products or services under that investment management umbrella? We do have an indexing service as well that we that we offer, um, but primarily I think our bread and butter uh, is is in the SMA space uh, right now. But obviously, with the launch of the ECP, we are looking towards the future. Okay, so let's talk about that ETF again, the Zach's Earnings Consistent Portfolio ETF. Um, I, I guess first, why enter the ETF space? Any uh, backstory here? I think primarily we we saw um, an opportunity to offer clients and advisors, another form of investment vehicle, right? We do have a few, uh, um, I'm sorry, a few mutual funds, 
we have uh, a number of SMAs that we offer um, across the board. And we saw like an opportunity for um, a place in the market, right? We, we, see, we saw ETFs were obviously they've, they've gotten very popular. It's probably become the preferred investment vehicle between you and I, right, in, in the last couple of years. Um, the numbers are, you know, proofs in the pudding here with $800 billion moving into ETFs last year. Uh, we saw an opportunity in, 20, uh, in August of 21. We, we were obviously thinking about it for a while prior to that, um, and we jumped in. Okay, so walk us through the ETF itself. This is actively managed. Uh, you, you mentioned leveraging the insights from the research arm. Just explain how holdings are selected and anything else you think is noteworthy. Absolutely, yeah. So so like I mentioned prior, right, we are pulling the competitive advantage we have over other firms is we have our own research company, um, and we have a lot of data. So the, the start of this portfolio really starts with the largest and most liquid companies in the market today. So it's about, right, top 750 names the first we we're very much a quantitative shop as 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 you know right we take a lot of all of our research right is 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 run through our quantitative screens first so what we're doing is we're looking for companies with 15 years of operating history that's the first piece of this puzzle right we no no company is going to make it into the portfolio if they have less than 15 years right which eliminates some companies that I'm sure a lot of uh listeners are familiar with right like meta particularly meta um, the second piece of the puzzle is essentially we're looking for um, consistency in earnings per share over that mar- those mar- multiple market cycles, right? So, okay, 15 year op- more than 15-year operating history, we need consistent earnings and earnings per share through multiple market cycles, right? So companies that are, have weathered the storm through, through different events uh, in the market, right? So it's 2008, 2020. Even 2000, some of the companies go back that far. And the third piece is we're looking for an agreement amongst sell-side analysts on the street uh, for earnings per share for this year, this fiscal year, and next fiscal year. And what that leads to is essentially it's about a 50 to 65 name um, portfolio that, that is actively managed. You mentioned that you're uh, very much a quantitative shop, and, and so I'm curious – uh, how much active discretion is typically used in this ETF? Like, can you talk more about the qualitative side? Sure, yeah. So ultimately, right, we do run quantit- – we're, we're very much a quantitative shop, but the last say and the last look of the portfolio is is done by our portfolio managers, right? They are reviewing these portfolios every single day for um, to make sure we have – Right, a well, not just a well diversified fund, but it actually meets the criteria that we would like to put out as a portfolio. Right, so they do have conviction in the process. The process starts, and you know, it starts with quantitative, but it ends with our portfolio managers and, and their eyes on them daily. As I was crawling into the CTF and, and just looking at the methodology, one of the first things that popped into my uh, head was a minimum volatility. Approach, and I'm curious, just from your perspective, how similar or dissimilar you think this ETF is from uh, a low vol or, or min vol approach. And I know low and min vol have their own uh, important differences, but mm-hmm. just high level, how does this Zach's ETF compare? Yeah, so I think you can you can make a case that right that obviously volatility it is a minimum volatility is a big piece of this portfolio, but we are pulling in other factors when we are looking at the looking at the names inside, right? So really we are doing, we are, we are taking a bottom, bottom up approach as well. 
and we're looking at quality. We're also looking at liquidity, right? Like I mentioned, like the top largest and most liquid names are going to be going to be the first piece of this uh, portfolio construction process. So that's kind of where I think we see a little bit of a difference from something like USMV, right? Um, you're, you're, you're looking at multiple factors as opposed to just one factor. So again, obviously the portfolio, I mean, the idea here is a more resilient portfolio, uh, you know, as you know, to companies that, that have a track record of, of moving through recessionary periods with, with uh, you know, less negative impact. And so I'm curious with that in mind, if you have any strong views on the economy and markets right now, like, are you concerned about a recession? Do you think stocks have that priced in? Anything you would note here on, on, on that side? In regards to the economy, I think uh, we at Zach's have been kind of pushing the, the rates are going to be, are going to be higher for longer, right? I still think, we still think that the, uh, the, the market is pricing in some, some kind of rate uh, decrease at the end of the year. We very much so are not in that camp. We believe that the rates are going to be higher for longer. I mean, just look at the jobs report on Friday, right? It's still job. The jobs report is still the labor market is still super strong. Um, it doesn't kind of tell us anything different than what we were thinking long term. So we do feel right that that higher rate environment is going to affect earnings in the longer run. And this this ETF, right, is kind of something that we we, we feel that is going to perform well. Um, at you know through the end of the year and next year because you know eventually these these rates are going to have an effect on companies' earnings and and the and the companies that we have in the portfolio right are used to dealing with adversity and volatility in the long term. Okay, so with that response, I have to ask you, uh, what, what do you think when you see a stock like uh, Nvidia, where, where the thought is? You know, you know, that company may have very high earnings growth, uh, you know, out into the future, but you're obviously paying a high multiple for those potential earnings. That runs counter to the types of companies Zax is screening for. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on NVIDIA or some of the other big tech companies that we've seen run this year. I know Microsoft is a top 10 holding in your ETF. Yeah, I mean, so, right, to pull this, you know, obviously anybody can look at the holdings in, in the ECP currently since we're open and transparent. Uh, Apple and Microsoft are two of the largest holdings in the portfolio. But... If we take NVIDIA into account, right, I can tell you right now, the reason why NVIDIA isn't in the portfolio is because it has a, you know, it, it has a high volatility of estimated and historical earnings per share, right? It doesn't necessarily meet the same criteria that Microsoft and Apple has because you can look back in the history of the market, right? Apple and Microsoft over the last 20 years have, have been consistent, consistently earning and, you know, they have had a you know, their historical earnings per share has certainly been consistent, right? NVIDIA, 10 years from now, which I, I do believe personally that the company will be up in that upper tier of of company names, right, in the market, 10 years from now, we could be having a different conversation. If we come back to, to ZECP, NVIDIA could make it into the portfolio. All right, so you have ZECP. Anything at all you can tell us about future uh, ETF plans? At Zach, should we expect additional launches down the road? I would, I would say yes. Right, I have been doing a lot of research. I've been talking with our, you know, our team, our portfolio team, our our CEO. We are very much interested in in new ETFs. We feel that we can offer some unique and interesting perspectives to the market in terms of active ETFs. Uh, we, like I said, we've been managing money for for 30 plus years now. We feel that 
ETFs give us a different vehicle to kind of do a little bit more of a higher trading, right? I think a lot of times we do get in, in, in conversations with advisors and, and they get in conversations with clients and they see high turnover in portfolios, but being in a, an ETF wrapper, right, it gives you the flexibility to maybe turn over the portfolio a little bit more than you would in, in an SMA. Sal, just about a minute left here. Before I let you go, I did want to ask you about those uh, model portfolios because I was poking around on your website and I, I saw the ZECP ETF model portfolios, which mm-hmm. says that these combine ZECP, obviously, with additional best-in-class ETF models. I, I'm just curious, what does that entail? So, so to keep to keep it right in interest of time, so those portfolios, what they do is we, we we're taking we're taking the Zach's rank, so we do rank ETFs as well as stocks on the Zach's research side. And we're ranking the, the additional ETFs in that portfolio and putting them in the portfolio based on asset classes, right? So they're very much actively managed, actively managed ETF models that, that pull in ZECP as, as the large cap core component of the, the portfolio. And we're adding the top ranked ETFs, uh, that we have from the exact research side in to the asset, asset allocations, right? So we have, our CIO team is, is making asset allocations on a quarterly basis. They tweak, they add, they subtract. Um, they, they set their asset allocation parameters every quarter, and we fill them in with ETFs that are best in class, that are top ranked from the Zacks ETF ranking, and then we add ZECP as the large cap component. Most of those ETFs that make it into the portfolio are passive, so you're getting kind of an active management component in your large cap piece and you're getting passive ETFs in the, in the rest of the asset classes, but you're also getting active asset allocation throughout, throughout the year with our CEO. I mean, I'm sorry, our CIO making tweaks to the different asset allocations based on the market environment. And how does someone access those models? Yes. You, so, so there, those models are on a lot of the, the, a lot of the different custodians, and you can also reach out to our wholesaling team or myself, and I'm happy to walk them through, walk you through them. Well, Sal, enjoy connecting this week. Uh, certainly wish you the best of luck moving forward with the ETF business. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Big fan of the podcast. So I love what you're doing. Thank you. That was Sal Esposito, head of ETF products at Zax Investment Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares, you can visit iShares.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Northern Trust Michael Natal. So we'll talk current market environment and look at several FlexShares ETFs. And then Tukram's Sal Gilberti will offer an outlook on the commodity space, and we'll spotlight several of their ETFs as well. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Thank you.